0: Now approaching junction at platform passengers Airport, Please stay on board. Next stop road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
2: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. This week, I want to take you back to a clear night in February when a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket blasted into orbit from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Stage one, pressing for flight. Five,
0: four, three, two, one, zero. Take sure.
2: The rocket had three payloads an internet satellite from Indonesia, another one from the US Air Force, and the third was a lunar lander called Beresheet that was developed by an Israeli nonprofit. And Beresheet is the one that we're interested in. The Falcon 9 released it about 40,000 miles above Earth. Putting it into an orbit that, for the past 50 days or so, has been elongating until this week when it was set to become the first ever privately funded spacecraft to land on the moon. And on board, it had some very special cargo. It was a handful of disks that contained more than 30 million pages of information. Think of it as a blueprint of humanity so far. It's our scientific advances, our fights, our fables, a bit of our music, a lot of our books. It's a lunar library, and according to the man behind it, it is the first billion-year backup of humanity, just in case we nuke ourselves into oblivion or render Earth uninhabitable through climate change or, you know, a species of superior AI-powered robots decide we're just a nuisance. So, obviously, I had lots of questions about this project. So, I thought in this momentous of weeks that I would bring on Nova Spivak, who came up with this idea, to explain why. And just two production notes before we get started. One, if the audio sounds a bit different this week, it is because Spivak was in LA, so we did this over Skype. And two, we recorded this. Last weekend, so just a few days before the lander was set to either touch down on the lunar surface or blow apart into a million pieces. So, without further ado, here is the man himself.
3: I'm Nova Spivak, the co founder and chairman of the ARC Mission Foundation, which is a USA nonprofit that is backing up planet Earth. And the Lunar Library is our first major installation on another celestial body, in this case, the moon.
2: So why do it on another celestial body? Why not do it, I don't know, you know, like the seed vault up in the Arctic Circle?
3: Good question. Well, it's best practice in the IT space, where I come from, to have an off-site backup if you're really serious about protecting stuff. We are starting with an off-site backup, but we certainly aren't going to end with an off-site backup. We have plans to put these on Earth as well. So what is happening right now
2: in outer space? As we uh, At
3: this very minute, there's quite a lot taking place in outer space. Maybe we should narrow the question a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Specifically related to the lunar library.
3: Got it. Okay. So we are right now orbiting the moon in the the Beresheet Lander, which is the Israeli private mission to the moon. The Lunar Library is a stack of 25 nanotechnology objects inside the lander. And we will orbit the moon a bunch of times, gradually descending until the system goes into an automated landing mode, and hopefully lands gently on April 11.
2: And how long have you been working on that? Like, well, uh, let me ask first. These 25 nano storage, I
3: don't know, are they disks? They look like disks. What are they made out of? They're made out of pure nickel. They are, are built using a very complicated advanced process. First, we etch to glass at 300,000 dots per inch with a laser. Then we electrodeposit nickel atom by atom onto the glass and we peel it off. And that creates these thin layers, which become the, what we're calling disks. There are 25 of these, you know, they're quite thin. If you put them all together, the stack of 25 is the thickness of a standard DVD, but it's actually 25 disks, not one. Wow. So how
2: did you get here with this project? Cause this all sounds a bit kind of, pardon
3: the pun, a bit out there. <laughs> Well, it's a you know it's a long and winding road. It starts when I was actually a kid, and I had uh, a lot of interest in space. And somewhere along the line, I had this dream: Why don't we back everything up in space? And, and I, that was that's a long story about the, all that. But the long but eventually the result is that after a lot of things in the tech space, I, I came back to that idea and started seriously thinking about: Is there a way to back up? human civilization in a, in a place uh, where it can last for perhaps billions of years. And when I started thinking about that, it quickly became apparent that's not on Earth. You want to do it somewhere nearby and somewhere that is likely to be discovered if there's ever anybody there to find it. And the moon is the logical place to do that. That set us on a path to trying to figure out how. You know, this, we seriously began looking into this in around 2015 is when we seriously began to research this.
2: And so, when you say when we started to look at this, I mean, obviously, this is not a—it's not—it's not a small undertaking. You obviously have to come up with a way to store something in space that, as you say, is going to last billions of years. So that alone is a very difficult thing, I would imagine. And then the whole small detail of shooting it into outer space and landing it on the moon.
3: Yeah, yeah, a very hard project. No, no question about it. So the first challenge was storage media. What would actually be able to do this? It has to be able to store a large amount of data and it has to be extremely durable. And the first thing you find out when you go down that path is that there is no existing storage media today on earth that's widely used at least, that's durable for longer than maybe a thousand years. And even that is a big maybe. There are some archival technologies, for example, microfilm and microfiche. They're only certified for 50 years. There was a technology called M-Disc, which was a special type of DVD, but it still has polycarbonate layers that, that actually decay. So the first thing we had to do was figure it out. So in our first mission, it was a test mission we did with Elon Musk. We actually used a technology out of the UK from the University of Southampton, the Optoelectronics Laboratory, and particularly the lab of, of Professor uh, Peter Kosansky there. Mm. Uh, and that was quartz crystal. We wrote into this quartz crystal using a femtosecond laser, very, very advanced technology. We wrote the Isaac Asimov Foundation Trilogy, three books, not a lot of data, about three megabytes. And that was stored in this quartz crystal and is now orbiting the sun for 30 million years in Elon Musk's Roadster. Oh,
2: that's in, a, that's in the Roadster?
3: hmm That's in the glove compartment of the Roadster. It's the secret it's their Easter egg payload. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we did that uh, long story short but you know we basically we learned that elon really liked the foundation trilogy and it turns out right. so do i and so did the rest of us and so we we actually as a test wrote the foundation trilogy to that quartz crystal testing our system and then i happened to get a chance to engage with him on twitter in front of 20 million people one day where i offered it to him and he accepted it and so that's how we ended up getting onto the tesla so that was our first test but that media, while it's very promising and durable and interesting, is not yet ready for the, co- the amounts of data that we actually want to send. And so we had to find something else, for, at least for the near term, maybe in 10 years, that media will be ready. It's just not fast enough. We had to find something else because we're storing much more than, than, than three megabytes.
2: Before we go any further, can you talk about what you're storing? We have these 25 super thin disks that together about the thickness of a CD or DVD or whatever. What is on there?
3: So it's about 30 million printed pages of information and if we break it down, there's two major sections. Um, There's a section in analog. The first four layers are analog, which means we've etched the information as literally printed images on the nickel. You can see them with a microscope. You don't need a computer. They're not binary. They're pictures in the nickel at nanoscale. So pictures of pages of text, pictures of photos, pictures of things. And so we did that on the first four layers so that if you find this in a billion years and for some reason Microsoft Windows is no longer supported then, (laughs) uh, you will still be able to get the data with a microscope.
2: So that's literally like tiny, 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 you know, PDFs or whatever, where you can
3: actually see them. little TIFF images or PDF images. You need a a microscope that's about 150 to 250 magnification, which is something we had in the 1700s. So it's not high technology, but basically if you're able to at least have an optical level of technology development, you can retrieve these first four layers, which is about 60,000 analog pages.
2: And what are those pages of?
3: Well, for that analog section, our goal was to, first of all, we we have to assume you might not have a computer, you might never be able to get the digital layers, which are the next, the remaining 21 layers. And so we want to make sure to, that we do two things with those first four layers. We want to teach you lots of stuff, make it useful. And we also want to teach you how to get digital stuff in case you can. The analog layers have a primer that we developed that teaches something like a million concepts with pictures and diagrams so that you can understand a lot of our knowledge and thinking and history and timelines, geography, science, languages, all of this stuff is done visually with pictures and diagrams. And then...
2: So kind of like uh, modern day cave paintings?
3: Yep, exactly. Although instead of wildebeests and things, it's, you know, the periodic table. But nonetheless, yeah. And so... There's a lot of really detailed, comprehensive knowledge that kind of gets you up to speed on what you need to know and understand to be able to make sense of the digital stuff. So we call that the primer. And there's a lot, of, a lot went into that. And then there's a bunch of other things in the, the top layers. One is a, is a whole set of technical and engineering documents that teach you everything you need to know to access the digital Layers, everything from you right. know, what you need to know to basically build a computer.
2: Because I don't imagine, uh, to your point around Microsoft Windows, I don't imagine these, you can't pop this into your uh, Blu ray and access it.
3: I mean, t- actually, I mean, they are readable if you have an advanced device that can do that, but we can't assume that a recipient has that. In fact, it's most likely that someone that finds it, you know, they'll, they'll analyze it optically, they'll figure out what's going on, and for the digital layers, they'll if they're advanced, like you know, at least advanced, as advanced as we are, they'll just basically scan them in and analyze them in whatever their computers are in memory. Yeah. They won't use spinning disks and moving parts and things
2: like that. But the idea is that so you have all this primer of kind of civilization as we know it, kind of the basics, and then a kind of instruction manual just in case to access the rest.
3: That's right. Now, there's a couple other things in the analog layer, layers, I should say. There was a time capsule we made for Space IL which was really focused on space IL's history as an organization, as well as Israeli cultural and historical content. Mm -hmm. Um, They've talked quite a bit about that, you know, things like the uh, Hebrew Bible, an exhibition of Israeli and Jewish inventions and technology, the Holocaust Memorial, and so forth. So there's quite a bit of their stuff, and that's one section. There's also a whole Ark Mission section for our advisors and our content. There's a bunch of books and other things from advisors in fact lewis dartnell who is a professor in the uk uh, wrote yeah. a terrific book called the knowledge and his book is in there in analog that book is about how to rebuild civilization it's all that's all the information you kind of must have to get at least up to our level of civilization we have in the analog section also something from the long now foundation which is called the wearable rosetta which is a visual key to the linguistics of a large set of languages so it kind of helps you understand different languages. Um, so there's many many things like this in the, in the analog section. Then in the digital section, there's really vast amounts of information compared to what was in the analog section. So in the analog section, 60,000 analog images, you know, each one contains quite a bit of content because in one image, you, know, you can have a, a, a very complicated diagram or page of stuff. I mean, you can fit yeah. a lot into an image. But anyway, as we get down into the digital layers, then we've got ultimately about 200 gigabytes of data, including the English Wikipedia. Actually, not the images and media files. That was too big. We'll do that. We'll send them on a subsequent mission. But the text and full text with images of 30,000 books, handpicked, curated around every major subject that you would study in a university. Language guides and training and linguistics on over 5,000 languages with over a billion and a half translations between them. From an organization called Panlex, the World Factbook, which is all about geography and uh, geopolitics,
2: is, is that the CIA World Factbook?
3: There's only one, um, <laughs> the World Factbook, which is a great resource on so geography.
2: It, I, I know but, it as a, only because I'm a journalist, and every time I would be writing about a country I didn't know anything about, that's where I would go.
3: So that you know that's a very good reference. And then Project Gutenberg, we selection, large selection from that, which is a a large online, one big online library of books, and other data sources, uh, including a set of, so far not yet revealed, sets of data that we call the vaults. Oh,
2: that sounds mysterious. It is mysterious. So I, I don't imagine you're gonna
3: reveal it on, that, on this podcast. Um, no, not yet. We will start revealing some vaults in the near future, but we're saving those for very special occasions.
2: Is the reason you're doing that partly to kind of stoke interest and or investment for future missions?
3: Doing what the vaults?
2: Yeah, and just kind of you know unveiling them and kind of keep you know because it's a it's people want to know what's in there and I imagine when you reveal them people it will generate interest and news and because obviously uh, as you started out you know this is a nonprofit you need people to pay for this stuff uh, you know it's not cheap to get stuff into
3: the strategy of the. Why we put certain things, why we make certain things public, and uh, while certain, while why certain things are in vaults, it's not a fundraising or PR strategy, so to speak. But two things: one, there's just way too much to announce it all at once. Right. If we did that, even you, the greatest journalist in the world,
2: thank you. Yeah. Even
3: you. So we had to keep that in mind um, and try to, rather than overwhelm people, which I think we've already done. I mean, if you actually read our white paper, it's hundred pages long. It's overwhelming. Um, and even that is too much. Um, you know, if I was to describe all of the content, it would certainly be thousands of pages. You know, just can't really in practice do that all at once. So that, that was number one. Number two, there are certain collections that are really special. And, you know, if knock on wood, we don't make, well, let's, let's say knock on wood, we do make it, right? If for something If something goes wrong and we don't make it, we have a chance to announce those in the future with a different mission. You know, they're certain, they're really cool, they're really special. And so we'll just kind of hold those close to the vest until we're actually on the moon and until the right time arises to, to talk about them. And then there are some things there that are just astounding and, and we may never announce them.
2: And so why do this? Is this a kind of a doomsday type, you know, in case we need to reboot humanity, here's the, here's the guidebook and here's how far we got type of thing?
3: I mean, that's not, that's not the primary reason we're doing it, but it's definitely a reason. I'm much more of an optimist than a pessimist. But sure, there is a chance, and it's a non-zero chance, that this might be useful someday. We kind of hope it isn't going to be necessary. But if you, if you think on long enough timescales, it's guaranteed you know, that there are going to be large extinction-level events in the solar system. It happens regularly. And so you know, our only way of avoiding that problem is to not be limited to living on Earth. And if humanity pulls that off, maybe we can last through the next one. So that's the negative view. On on the positive, why did people build pyramids? Why did they build Gothic cathedrals? Why did they build the great monuments or architectural wonders of the world? Why did they do that? There was a benefit to the builders, to the civilization at that time, to the economies, to the technologies, to the artists, artisans, you know, there were many benefits from simply trying to make something so amazing and difficult that it challenged the entire civilization to, to stretch. And, you know, if successful, you know, resulted in a symbol that everybody could look to and be inspired by, that would become a cultural inspiration, you know, a, a, something good that would that would help everybody become better, or aspire to be better. And so, That's the positive view. And in fact, we have seen a lot of that from this project. I mean, hopefully we're going to land, but even if we don't, there's been so much good that's come from this along the way in terms of getting amazing interdisciplinary conversations between the humanities and engineers and new technologies that have been found or developed. I think a lot of great visibility for the emerging new space sector all kinds of great things have come from it, and you know it's been a heck of a lot of fun, so we really have no complaints the only, you know if there, was only, if there was one thing that could be better, it would be to find you know a couple billionaires who really love what we 're doing and would support it so we can keep doing it.
2: surely Elon Musk has got it, I mean because also he in particular is very famously worried about artificial intelligence he says it's summoning the demon and creating this existential threat to humanity for just one example and not to mention that he runs spacex so i would i would think that he would he would be right up his alley
3: you i'll give you a newsworthy little nugget so hey elon if you're listening to this podcast it's about time that we catch up because i haven't heard from you call me sometime <laughs> you know elon elon's so busy basically breaking barriers in a bunch of frontiers um, Hmm. that I don't think he's had a lot of time to think about doing this with us again. We accomplished something pretty cool together with Tesla, and we're very grateful that he gave us a ride. Yeah, he'd be the perfect guy, no question.
2: Or Bezos. Bezos has blue origin. This
3: would be the perfect guy. Hey, what about Gates? What about all three? And throw in Richard Branson for good measure. (laughs) How about someone from Asia? This should be a world project, right? Every culture, every nation should be part of this because we're gonna put these all over the solar system and that's part of our strategy. If you really wanna guarantee that these things last and that at least some of them could be found someday, you gotta do a couple things. One, you gotta keep sending them because there's always new information to add. Two, you gotta put them in many places because you never know which places are gonna make it or who's gonna be where in the future. And then finally, you need to build an organization that can, that can really sustain that process. And so we need to achieve that if we're really serious about this being more than just a kind of one-off or, you know, well, we have a couple more missions, but that's a blip in terms of geological timescales. So if we want this to be uh, anything like Isaac Asimov's foundation, it's got to last a long time. It's got to become a self-sustaining organization that just keeps doing this.
2: It reminds me of... Um... A lot of our listeners won't re- recall uh, when you actually had to back things up manually with a floppy disk. You had to keep doing it, and now it's just on the cloud, and it happens every three seconds, and you don't have to worry about it. But it does feel like
3: someday this that will be possible with what we're doing. Um, in fact, I mean, it could be done. If the problem is today there is very limited bandwidth. We're with another partner, Hypergiant. We've announced that we're going to be working together to put some further interplanetary internet nodes in space to try to help address that problem. But uh, there's not a lot of bandwidth right now for things like that. Secondly, power on the Moon and in space is a challenge. I mean, there's solar power, but on the Moon, you've got 13 days of day and 13 days of night. Nobody's yet figured out how to make anything really last. Chinese actually just did it. But... For the most part, getting through the lunar night and then starting your engines or or starting your battery again is a challenge.
2: But so we're kind of in the floppy disk era of backing up humanity.
3: Yeah. The lab and hardware that we need on the moon is pretty sophisticated. So it's definitely doable and certainly doable within, call it, 50 years. Right. um, Once we have a settlement, then we can just be, you know, we can have servers, you know, Amazon on the moon. We can be backing up to the cloud on the moon and then writing it into these special durable materials there on the moon and in other places.
2: And is that part of the kind of the, the, the long-term vision is this kind of settlement of the moon as a part of kind of making this more robust and part of the whole kind of grand plan? I mean, there's
3: plan? many locations that are very important. Um, the moon is the most important because it's so symbolic and central to human history and always will be. Everybody sees the moon right? and everybody kind of looks at it as an important first place to go if you're becoming a space-faring civilization. And if we ever, if life on Earth gets destroyed and re-evolves, it's gonna go through that process again, and it's gonna go to the moon. In fact, the moon is not the most durable place. You know, it gets pelted with, you know, asteroids. It's not the best place to put something from that perspective, unless you put it underground, which we will eventually do, but it is the best place to put something so that it gets noticed. Furthermore, the moon is gonna be the important beachhead kind of a waypoint or staging you know, base camp for missions to other parts of the solar system. And we've got to get a manned colony on the moon. We've got to get you know, refueling and energy and all kinds of things there so that we can start extending the diameter of human civilization, if you will, uh, out towards Mars.
2: Becoming a multi-planetary species as Elon Musk keeps talking about.
3: Hey, Elon, <laughs> put a pin in that.
2: If
3: you want to build a an interplanetary species, a multiplanetary species. If you want to bring civilization to space and become a space-faring civilization, well, you've got to actually send civilization. That's what we're doing.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11
0: and get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door.
1: They can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: How much has it cost to get to to do this thus
3: far? <laughs> well, I mean, if we actually had to pay for everything we're doing to get to where we are today it would it definitely be in the 10 million dollar range but we didn't have to pay for everything we're doing cuz we're a nonprofit and and as a nonprofit there are organizations that have generously donated resources to us that would have been quite expensive is it the,
2: is the charney family is are they the main funder
3: so for this particular mission our main financial sponsor was the charney resolution center which is silly charney and that she Runs the empire that was created by Leon H. Charney, who was a New York real estate tycoon, lawyer, television personality, and uh, and a major political kingmaker who brokered right. uh, the Arab Israeli peace. You know, and he was a very uh, he was very strongly connected to Israel. He was a Cantor, and so fortunately, uh, we met silly, and she's really interested in art and culture. Israel. And, and she's also one of these people who all her life has wanted to go to the moon. So it was just really good luck that I was able to meet her and that she likes liked the idea. So she stepped up and enabled us to do this because this wasn't free. It wasn't $10 million either. And so she enabled us to do it. And so, you know, really, really, uh, we're very grateful.
2: and so And so the idea is just going back to this lunar lander which right now is orbiting the moon theoretically it lands on the 11th and then it just that's it it stays there and for well theoretically for billions of years
3: so as one of the founders of space will put it to me in a private chat okay now we're either landing or crashing when this gets to the moon. Will it be intact or will it be in sort of a, a vapor of metallized particles that impacted it at, you know, hyperspeed? Hopefully right. that does not happen. Hopefully it's a soft landing. I'm really hoping because after all these years of work, this is it. I mean, the suspense is insane. We, we try not to think about it, frankly. Right. Um, but if it gets there somehow, then we estimate at least 500 million years and likely longer. There are some variables that... Uh, that will affect that. One is, you know, there is a, a small but non-zero chance that a giant meteor crashes into that exact place on the moon. Less likely is, you know, the moon is destroyed. Not too worried about that. That'll take about five to six billion years. Micrometeorites aren't a big problem because there's many, many layers of different materials, the spacecraft and, and other, th- other kinds of shielding and insulating materials between us and, and the space environment. So I don't think that's a big problem. Uh, radiation is not a problem. This is the media we're using, cannot be affected by radiation or heat. So as, soon, as long as it doesn't get hit by a giant meteor, I think we're okay. And given that, you know, it potentially could be there as long as the moon.
2: And is there any I mean I know that this is conceived as a as a kind of an optimistic reaching out from Earth. But are there any overarching fears that are also behind you wanting to do this, whether I don't know, climate change
3: or the rise of AI or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. I think the number one fear is is the environment. That is probably the biggest problem humanity faces. It's also the problem that humanity is in the, in the most denial about. Um, and so, you know, that really could be the thing that does us in. And I hate going down this path, but since you asked, you know, the doomsday clock is closer to striking midnight than it's ever been. Um, you know, the, the, the threat of nuclear war is worse than it was during the Cold War. There's no balance anymore. There's no... Cold, you know, there was no mutually assured destruction, it's just, you know, chaos, lots of people with weapons and no particular yeah. logic to keep them from shooting them at each other. And so, you know, there's that as well. We have that risk. But I I think actually that is uncertain and, and not that likely. Whereas the environment, that I think it's almost guaranteed that humanity is gonna go through a very difficult period of time, probably a mini ice age. The big difference is that now There is clearly a change in the composition of the atmosphere um, that is the result of human civilization. And we can yeah. see it in the sediment. We can see it in the fossil record. We can see it in the geological record. You know, we, we see what's going on. It's sort of indisputable. And therefore, I think, unfortunately, you know, if we're talking about a million-year timescale, it doesn't look too good. If if
2: there is a soft landing, will this be the first vehicle landing on the moon in X number of years? Or was it, did China do this? I feel like China did
3: something. The, the accomplishment isn't that it's the first thing to land on the moon in any period of time. I mean, China just, you know, did it twice um, yeah. pretty impressively. But it's the first commercial, private, non-governmental landing on the moon yeah. ever. It is the... You know, it's certainly the first landing by Israel a, a relatively small com- country. It's pretty impressive that they pulled it off. It's the, it's the least expensive mission by, by far. It's also you know, interesting because of the payload. In this case, you know, the Ark Mission Lunar Library, which is first library on another celestial body. It's the first year backup of, of humanity. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. And so there's that. There's a lot of new technologies that have been developed by Space IL as well to do this. So there's a lot that will come out of it um, that will enable many more missions after this by many others.
2: And was there any jockeying going into like what you actually put on those disks of people being like, well, my art should be on there or my novel or, you know, my bio from, you know, like I'm a division manager at Kinko's, but you know, I'm representative of a certain type of person or whatever.
3: <laughs> well, I mean, this was a secret project. We didn't have a big problem with that because we didn't tell anybody we were doing it. And I think had we well, announced it, that would have created those kinds of problems, and that's why we didn't. That, w-
2: that was why you kept it secret.
3: Mm-hmm. We just didn't want it to get politicized, and we didn't. We, we had limited space and limited budget, so we, we knew we weren't going to be able to accommodate everyone. For this particular mission, we curated it, ourselves with a all, with a bunch of professional you know library scientists and our partners and others we, we curated it and did a good job but you know it's not everything uh, it'll take many more missions to do that uh, you know a large library would have over a million resources you know actual books or periodicals and, and so forth you know we've technically got tens of thousands of resources including some big ones like the wikipedia but not over a million and so you know to do that and i would like to do that it will require a series of missions and a lot more storage and quite a bit more funding and you know, probably decades to just really continuously send more and more, right. more stuff.
2: Is there a disclaimer in
3: there about Wikipedia about how some people can <laughs> – because it's commu...
2: – <laughs> As well as
3: Wikipedia – and by the way, you remember, when you send Wikipedia, you also send the metadata of all the arguments behind it. There's the top oh, pages right. and that kind of stuff. We sent that, of course. Um, and that's a
2: very good representation of humanity. Very I feel interesting,
3: like. yeah. Um, but in addition, you know, the Wikipedia is one of over a thousand reference works that we sent. It's not the right. only perspective. It's a good one. It's a big one. And it's one that a lot of people help to make. It is imperfect, but you know, it's it's imperfection also enables it to to be more timely. But we certainly included many other very professionally developed and published resources but i won't say what they are and
2: as the one who conceived this whole um crazy idea did you get to include any kind of personal favorites in there that might not otherwise be there like a favorite film or a favorite book or anything
3: so the answer is yes quite a bit uh, and so did our other advisors and folks on the team who helped i mean we did have enough space to, to give people on the team everybody everybody got some space So there's there is that. There's also, you know, in the curated section, there's a lot of great stuff. And when you say thirty thousand books, you know, think about, you know, those thirty thousand books. There's room in there to put lots of important and interesting things. So I think we did a pretty good job there. Yeah, and then there's lots of other cool things which we'll get into. And we haven't we won't yet say what what is there, but there's music.
2: Oh I'm so interested in what music you chose.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, I think, again, we didn't have the resources to do as good a job on, on all of those things as we'd like, right? So yeah. if you're really going to do music, I mean, you could easily, you could, you could fill up 25 of these discs with just music, and you still wouldn't have all the music you should have. Um, and so uh, we did a first small attempt. But I think, you know, music and film and media and entertainment and journalism and Photography and every form of art, all of that—that's what we really want to send on future missions. That's, the, right. in fact, that's even more valuable in a way because knowledge and information is great, and you know, we're going to keep sending it, and keep updating it. But I think art and culture are ultimately very unique. Most, the most unique products, if you will, of our civilization, yeah. and in a billion years, they'll probably be more interesting to whoever finds this than you know whatever.
2: You know, obviously, this is a very long-term the whole kind of premise of this is thinking as long a term as possible you're coming from the tech industry which um let's just say doesn't always think super long-term um especially these days is this was part of the way or why you conceived of this a kind of a reaction to the way things are going right now especially with in in the tech industry and you know the, the the things that are that we're seeing every day
3: so I didn't really consciously think about your question when, when we started doing this, but it's, it's definitely a really good point. You know, the tech industry is, really it's moving too fast. It's not really introspecting. We're, we're definitely getting ahead of ourselves and we don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, but we, we certainly can say we, we have no idea where we're headed. That said, that's not, you know, that's not why we did this. Um, I think the bigger issue was, if you look at the planet as a whole, if you look at the world today, doesn't really feel like the world is better you know, than it was 10 years ago. It feels like things are in a more precarious place. I think the, the overall concern for just the direction that we're going in and was, was probably a bigger motivator, not just that tech industry issue. That said, right. um, you know, we hope, just as Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy did, you know, that just by making a little change, just by making people think slightly differently, um, we could nudge civilization to go in a direction that ultimately has a big change, a big benefit, a big improvement. So small change today, you know really big change in the far future.
2: Yeah, it's like the uh, the first photo photograph of the of planet Earth from space.
3: Yeah, those little things, I mean, small yet you know profoundly impactful to the collective consciousness, the psyche, and overall direction of of people's aspirations
2: well all i'll say is for future missions if you want to include any podcasts or really top-rate journalism you have my number
3: there you go awesome yeah we would love (laughs) i mean really honestly we when when we get the the billionaires and the funding that we really should have for this very important initiative um, we want to send all of this stuff i mean i think you know future archaeologists everywhere will be thrilled listen to your podcast
2: (laughs) well that's brilliant look i really appreciate you taking the time and i'm glad we made it past our technological difficulties
3: yeah it was was great i mean we can get to the moon but we, we can't get skype working
2: and that is all the time we have i want to thank nova for soldiering through the technical difficulties we had it took us about almost 40 minutes just to get the audio to work That is it for me this week. I am in the paper this weekend at the Sunday Times, also online at thetimes.co.uk. The usual socials and Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can also email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. And who knows? Maybe I'll read out some reviews, and then if I get on one of these future lunar libraries, your words will be immortalized forever. How about that? Until next week. Have a good one. Bye bye.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
2: VoiceOver on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility.